Good morning. Last Sunday, we began a series through the book of Philippians. We're going to be working through that book on Sunday morning and on Sunday nights. So would you take God's Word and open it already now to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Al Moeller is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he recently, I heard him recently say that he has two diagnostic questions that he started using with people when he meets them to help turn conversations into gospel conversations. And I thought there were two very good questions. He said, the first question I ask people when I'm meeting them for the first time, maybe in the airport or, or uh, in, a, in an office or, or wherever it may be, he said, when I meet people for the first time, the first question I ask them is, what do you do? And of course, that's a very standard, easy question, what do you do? And he said, then the second question is this, what are you living for? So when he asked the first question, what do you do? Well, I'm a banker, or I'm a professor, or I'm a politician, or I'm a teacher, or whatever. What do you do? We, he gets that kind of answer. But then he asked him, well, what are you living for? He said, many times people will say something like this, I have no idea. I really don't. It's a good question. I really don't know. That second question is an important question. It's an important question for people that you meet. It's also an important question for every person here today. That question really is shaped by whether or not you know Jesus Christ. If you were to meet Paul in the first century and ask him, Paul, what do you do? Well, he would have said probably something like this. Well, by vocation, I'm a tent maker. Or he might have said, well... Uh, I'm a church planter, or he may have said, well, I'm a missionary. Then if you were to ask Paul, what are you living for? I think Paul would have said two things. I'm living for Jesus and sharing the gospel with those who don't know him. That's what I'm living for. And the reason I say that is because of what I find in Philippians chapter 1. I've studied this chapter over and over and over, and I've gone through and I've highlighted, and it just amazes me how often I see these words repeated throughout chapter 1. You'll see the word Christ 18 times in chapter 1. Jesus Christ is saturating chapter 1. It's it's all through chapter 1, Jesus and Christ, 18 times in chapter 1. You also see the word gospel six times in this one chapter. And I think those two words summarize the life of Paul. Jesus and the gospel. Those are the words that kind of summarize what he was about, and it summarized his life. And so using those two diagnostic questions this morning, I want to ask you to participate, and I want to ask you those questions. The first question is, what do you do? Uh, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to try, if there's somebody near you, I want you to try to turn around and ask somebody that you don't know, preferably somebody you don't know, I mean, don't, don't turn to your husband or your wife and say, what do you do? You know, wives are going to say, I've been wondering that for a long time. <laughs> All right, but turn to somebody you don't know, or, or at least maybe it's not somebody right beside you who's your spouse or family member. Turn to somebody if you can, ask them that first question, what do you do? Ready, set, go. Some of you are enjoying that way too much. I don't know what you're talking about. All right, so, so this question, what do you do? 
You just got all kinds of different answers. If we had time and you could share the answers, there'd be all kinds of different answers that you would say. When we ask that question, what do you do? Some of you would say, well, I'm a teacher or I'm a stay-at-home mom or I'm a, I'm a, a, a professor or I'm a banker or I'm an engineer or all kinds. I'm a warehouse worker. I'm, I'm a business owner. All kinds of different answers to the question, what do you do? Now, here's the second question. What are you living for? I'm not going to make you ask that to somebody. What are you living for? What are you living for? You know, to the first question, we all have different answers. What do you do? All kinds of different answers. To the second question, we all should have the same answer. The same answer being, I'm living for Jesus and sharing the gospel with those who don't know him. That's what I do. That's what I'm living for. You ought to be able to say, you know, I'm a student. That's, that's what I do. But here's what I'm living for. I'm living for Jesus and sharing the gospel with those who don't know him. Or I'm a stay-at-home mom, but I'm living for Jesus and I'm sharing the gospel with those who don't know him. I'm retired, but I'm living for Jesus and I'm sharing the gospel with those who don't know him. I'm a business owner, but I'm living for Jesus and I'm sharing the gospel with those who don't know him. I want to tell you something. Anything less than that is a very small way to live. So how do I get there? I think Paul shows us in Philippians chapter 1. I'm amazed at the passion and the focus of Paul's life in Philippians chapter 1. And the first thing that I want you to see is this. Your mission in life should be shaped by what God has done and is doing in your life. You see, the answer to that question, what are you living for? It should be shaped by what God has done and is doing in your life. Look how Paul says it. Uh, we want to read verses 3 through 6. I want to focus on verse 6. R- read verse 3 through 5 for co- uh, context. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, that is when I was with you and introduced you to Christ until now, 10 years later. Then he says in verse 6, the verse I want you to key in on, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I love the way Paul describes this. Paul is emphasizing in this verse that the work that is being done in their lives is the work of God. Now, Paul was the one who brought the gospel to them. Paul was the one who brought the good news to them. But he was just the messenger. He understood that it was God who was at work in their lives. You see, ladies and gentlemen, spiritual transformation in someone's life is something only God can do. God is the acting agent in the entire salvation process. And Paul breaks it down for us in verse 6. Look how he breaks it down. He tells us, first of all, that salvation originates with God. He says in verse 6, He who began a good work in you. That your salvation, it originated, it started with God. God was the first action in the salvation process. It all starts with God. Don't ever forget. Don't you ever think that you're somehow worthy and you're somehow good enough and you somehow deserved what you got. When God saved you, it was the gracious gift and work of God. It started with God. Salvation starts with Him. But it not only starts with Him, salvation also is sustained by God. He who began a good work in you will carry it on. 
He who began a good work in you will carry it on. In other words, you know what Paul is saying? God's never going to give up on you. God's never going to stop working in your life. He's going to carry it on. That's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I believe the Bible teaches the eternal security of the believer. That when you come to faith in Christ, when you become one of God's children, He saved you by His power and He will keep you by His power. He who began a good work in you, that same one who began a good work in you, will carry it on. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you thankful for that? That Listen, my salvation, it never one time depends on me. Now, growing in my relationship with God, certainly I have something to do with that. But my salvation is not in my hands. My salvation does not rest in my ability to be good. If it rested in my ability to be good, I would be in bad trouble. And so would you. And then not only does salvation originate with God, not only is it sustained by God, but praise the Lord, salvation is brought to completion by God. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm going to tell you something. One of the great mistakes that Christians make is that they view salvation as a one-time event. But that idea is foreign to Scripture. You might want to mark the words begin and completion. And in between beginning and completion, there is this process that God is doing. You see, what God begins, ladies and gentlemen, what God begins, He always, without exception, completes. The fact that the beginning is an absolute promise of its completion. Don't miss that. The fact of the beginning is a promise of its completion. That's why Hebrews refers to God as the author and the finisher of our faith. Paul was writing to people who who he had met and ministered to and led to the Lord about 10 years ago. And now Paul says, I know that 10 years later, the same God who started that work in you is going to bring it on to completion. You see, we cannot save ourselves, nor can we live the Christian lives by ourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, you need the Lord every day and in every way. But I love the fact that God didn't just do something for us. God is doing something in us. Look what he says. He who began a good work finishes, he began a good work where? In you. Underline that, highlight it, circle it. In you. He's doing a good work in you. I want you to remember something. When you allow God to do his work in your life, the results will always be good. He's doing a good work in you. You see, from a biblical perspective, salvation is twofold. Salvation is both an event where I'm saved from the penalty of sin, and it's also a process where I'm saved from the power of sin. For me, the event was at Clinton View Baptist Church when I was 11 years old, I placed my faith that morning for the first time in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I confessed my sins to Him. I asked Him to come into my life and forgive me and to cleanse me and to be my Lord and Savior. That was the event. And if you say, Keith, when were you saved? I would say, I was saved Clinton View Baptist Church, 11 years old. That was the event, but that was saved from the penalty of sin. But I'm also being saved from The power of sin. That's the process. Watch what Paul said. Look up here. Paul said, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you, 
the event. We'll carry it on to completion. That's the process. Don't look at your salvation as something that happened to you back there a long time ago. Your salvation should be something that is happening to you right now. And if that is true, and it is, then the question, what are you living for? Then the answer ought to be easy. I'm living for Jesus. Because He saved me from the penalty of my sin, and He is in the process of saving me from the power of sin, who else would I live for? What else would I live for? Paul was so focused on living for Jesus. Look what he says in verse 19. Let's skip down to verse 19. Second half, verse 18, he says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. That is, that I'm arrested and I'm in prison right now. Verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always... Get ready to mark this. Christ will be exalted in my body. Now, as always, I want to be living for Christ. Now, as always, if you ask me, what are you living for? I'm living for Jesus. Now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I am to go on living in the body, uh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But what shall I choose? I I do not know. I'm, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. Here's what I'm trying to help you understand, this first point. Your mission in life, your mission in life should be shaped by what God is doing in your life. What He has done and is doing in your life. What do you do? There are all kinds of answers to that. What are you living for? I'm living for Jesus. That's the answer you ought to give. The second thing I want you to see in this text is simply this. Your mission in life should be to share the gospel with people who need it. Going back now to verse 12. It's the second half of Paul's mission statement, if you will, of his life. Verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me? I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has served to advance the the gospel. Now those words have great meaning when you recognize where he wrote them from. When you recognize he was writing these words from a prison cell. And he says, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me and the fact that I'm chained to a Roman guard right now, the things that have happened to me have served to advance the gospel. What are you living for? I'm living for Jesus, and I want to advance the gospel. And so I want you to know that even though I'm in a prison cell, I haven't stopped my purpose. I haven't stopped living for that. In fact, I've recognized that because I'm living in this prison cell with this guard, I've got a captive audience. And I can talk to him about Jesus. And that's exactly what he did. Look what he said. 
As a result, verse 13, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. You know what Paul was talking about here? He said it's it's become clear to all the guards. You know why? Because they rotated the guards. There were were four guards that that rotated in and out every 24 hours. So they had these shifts. And and so every 24 hours, Paul had a new uh, set of four guards, one at a time. You know, six hours this one, six hours that one, six hours, six hours. And so he had, he had a fresh audience day after day after day after day. And the chain to the Apostle Paul, wouldn't you like to have been there as they listened? I mean, what else are you going to do if you're chained to Paul? All you got to do is look, you can't watch TV. What are you going to do? You, you don't have earbuds. You don't, you don't have your phone to kind of kill time with. What, what do you do if you're a guard chained to Paul? You know what you do? You listen. You listen as he talks to the people who come to visit him and how he talks about Jesus and the gospel. You listen as he's speaking out loud and writing letters to churches and he shares the gospel. You listen as he turns to you as a guard. And he says, have you ever heard the gospel? Paul says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really advanced the gospel through the whole Praetorian Guard. You know why? Because i got a very simple life mission. It is to live for Jesus and to share the gospel with those who don't know him. So, here's what we need to learn. We can do that anywhere. You know where Paul was doing this? In a Roman prison cell. Have you ever come to the point in your life, I have, I'm confessing. Have you ever been in those situations where you think, well, this is not a good place. Tell them about Jesus. This is not a good time. To tell them about Jesus. Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel. And he's chained to a Roman guard. If anybody could say, this is not a good place. I'm already in jail. I don't want it to get any worse. If there's anybody who said, this is not a good time. That would have been, that would have been Paul. But no, look what he says. It's amazing. It, it fascinates me how he says this. As a result, verse 13, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard. And everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Can I, can I ask you a question? Do people know who you are living for? He said, everybody knows that I'm in chains for Christ. Is it evident? You know, in your circles of influence, in your arenas of life, wherever you, when you're at school, when you're at work, when you're in your, in your neighborhood, is it evident? Is it evident that you are living for Christ? Verse 14, because of my chains... Most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. That is, when you're truly living for Jesus and sharing the gospel with those who don't yet know him, it encourages others who need to do the same thing. Verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me. While I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether by false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice in my prison cell. Because of this, I rejoice in my prison cell. You see, first of all, who you're living for is shaped by what God's done in your life. That's what we talked about first. Secondly, your mission in life. Your mission in life 
must be to share the gospel with those who don't yet know it. Number three, your mission in life also is to live for Jesus regardless of what happens to you. Church, there, you, you need to hear this one. Living for Jesus regardless of what happens to you. Look at what he says in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, those words, whatever happened, must have been powerful words when the people heard them for the first time, knowing Paul was writing as a prisoner in a prison cell in Rome. And he says, whatever happens, live in a, in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. Those are indeed powerful words. You know what Paul was trying to remind the people in Philippi and what we need to be reminded of? How you live your life matters. What you do during the week matters. What you do when you're not at church matters. What you do as a businessman matters. What you do as a teacher matters. He says, whatever happens, live your life in, in a way that is worthy of the gospel. You know, if, can, I put it, can I translate that for you in shorter terms? Shortest translation would be this. If you're a Christian, live like one. Whatever happens, live like one. Too often, though, we're pressured, aren't we? Especially in this day and age, we are pressured to live a certain way. Culture pressures us not to live like Christians. Culture pressures us not to use the name of Jesus. Culture pressures us and pushes us to keep our faith to ourselves. Paul would say, listen, whatever happens, it doesn't matter. Live like a follower of Jesus Christ. See, we tend to be wishy-washy in our convictions. We tend to be wishy-washy in our faith, and, and sometimes it's based on who's around us. If fellow Christians and strong Christians are around us, we're pretty strong in our faith. But, but if, if we're around people who don't know the Lord, we're kind of wishy-washy sometimes in our convictions. Too often our, our convictions are shaped by our friends and shaped by media and shaped by the culture. Paul says, no, no, your convictions are something you live by. And so I want to show you this in the text. He uses a word in verse 27 or a phrase in verse 27 that you need to see. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you, here's the word, stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Paul was saying, listen, this is too important for you to take lightly. This is too important for you to let somebody squeeze you into their mold. This is too important for you to kind of live for Jesus occasionally. He says, you need to stand firm. Folks, I, I, I've got to tell you this. The world is full of Christians who are on retreat, who, who when things grow difficult, they play down their Christianity. We are to stand firm in our faith. Regardless of the crowd we're with, stand firm in our faith, regardless of who's around us at work. Stand firm in our faith, regardless of where we find ourselves. If somebody were to say, what are you living for? It ought to come out of your mouth so easily. I'm living for Jesus and to share the gospel with those who don't yet know Him. We're living in a time where the gospel and Christianity are under attack more so than any other time in my lifetime. And we need each other so that we can stand firm in the faith, stand firm in the gospel, and live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, I'd like to do that. I'm just not there yet. I understand. But you need to know where you're heading. 
I want you to go back to verse 6 because you need to mark this promise in your Bible if you haven't already. Go back to verse 6. Let me remind you what we started with. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. He who, listen, you may not be there yet, but you ought to be a work in progress. You may not be everything that you want to be right now. You may not be standing firm all the time, but you ought to be working towards that. You ought to be working towards that. You may not be sharing your faith as much as you should, maybe not having gospel conversations all the time, but working towards that. You are a work in progress. I want you to understand something. Listen, folks, your salvation is not something that happened to you when you were 11. It's not something that happened to you when you were 21. That was just the starting point. Let God continue to change you even today. I love the tombstone of Ruth Graham. You know, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth. I had heard this before, but I wasn't sure. I thought it might just be folklore. I wasn't sure if it really was true until I I Googled it. You can Google it too. Don't do it right now, but you can Google it too. You can Google Ruth Graham's tombstone, and here's what it says. Let let me make sure I get this right. Uh, It says, Work under progress. Thank you for your patience. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It says, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. Here was a lady who understood. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. So I got two questions for you. What do you do? What do you do? All kinds of different answers to that one. Second question What are you living for? I want you to smile and say it from the bottom of your heart. I'm living for Jesus and to share the gospel with those who don't know him. I'll tell you something. Listen, come in close, listen. It doesn't matter what you do for your vocation so long as you're living for Jesus and sharing the gospel with those who don't know him. It doesn't matter if you've got a big title or no title, so long as you're living for Jesus and sharing the gospel with those who don't know him. When, it, when, we, when we come down to it, we're either a Philippians 1.21 Christian or a Philippians 2.21 Christian. One of the two. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Philippians 1.21, this is what it says. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Look at the Philippians 2.21. For everyone looks out for his own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Wow. Which one are you? Which one are you? A Philippians 1.21 Christian? For to me, to live is Christ. That's what I'm living for. Or Philippians 2.21 Christian who looks out for his own interest, his own business, his own vocation, his own bottom line, his, his own... Which one are you living for? That's the question you've got to wrestle with. That's the question you need to answer today. And if you're honest with yourself, you know the answer. If you're honest with yourself, you know the answer. And if you'll say, Lord Jesus, show me what I need to change, He will. You know why I know that? 
Because he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Let God work in you today. Join me as we pray about that. Father, I pray that if we're living for something less than Jesus, we're living for something less than the gospel, convince us, convict us, change us. May it become our heart's desire not to be a business owner, not to be a success, not to accomplish great things. May it become our heart's desire to shoot for something higher than that. To live for Jesus Christ and to share the gospel with those who don't yet know Him. I pray that in His name. Amen.